So this conversation that we're going to talk about today is a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, and it's really important. So I want to, I want to give you the setting of where this thing happens. It starts in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And you know the story. As soon as we get there, you're going to know it. Um, but Caesarea Philippi is situated about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at the base of Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi is the location of one of the largest springs feeding into the Jordan River. It's a gorgeous area. Um, this, uh, this abundant water supply has made the area really fertile and attractive for religious worship, actually. Numerous temples were built in the city very close to it, and specifically in the Hellenistic and Roman areas and periods. And um, what's really cool is that we get to hang out there this summer if you're coming on the trip with us, which is going to be really cool. We do lunch there. There's seven pools with these beautiful waterfalls. We bring a packed lunch and we hang out and we swim and it's phenomenal. But at the, at the top of this spring is where, where there's this cave and we'll get to that in a second. But it was known as Baal Hermon and Baal Gad, Gad actually in the Old Testament period. This site was later named Paneus, after the Greek god Pan, who was particularly worshipped there. So if you understand or have ever heard of pantheism, kind of comes from this area. There's no record of Jesus actually entering the city, but the Great Confession, which is what we're talking about today, and the Transfiguration both occurred in the vicinity of this city, um, then known again as Caesarea Philippi. The spring kind of comes from this, this large cave, which became the center of pagan worship, beginning in the third century BC. So by the time Jesus is there, 300 years of sacrifices that were cast into the cave as offerings to the god Pan. Pan, of course, being the half-man, half-goat god of fright, which, by the way, is where we get the word panic. I don't know if you know that. So the next time you're going into a panic, you're worshiping the god Pan. I don't think that's right. I don't think it works that way. Um, but it would give you all anxiety. Like you're already having a panic attack and now you have anxiety that you're no longer Christian. Like it's, it doesn't work that way, right? So sorry, I, I don't want to lay one more layer of, uh, sorry. I just apologize for that. Anyway, you, you know, you've seen him. He's often playing the flute, right? This city, which was known in ancient times as Peneus, is now called by its Arabic form, Baneus. Right? And at, right next to the cave is this escarpment of a, this rock escarpment with a series of hewn niches. So they bore it out. And we know that the statue of the deities were placed there. Um, and these, these riches were depicted on coins in the area. So it was a pretty important place. One of the niches housed, in the scu housed the sculpture of Echo, who was Pan's consort and a nymph. Another of the niches housed a statue of um, Pan's father, the god Hermes, son of the nymph Maia. Inscriptions were underneath the niches, and they mentioned those who gave large donations. So if you think that churches asking for money started with Christianity, it started way earlier than that. And in fact, um, naming opportunities. Have you ever been to a church where you walk into the bathroom and like the sink has a name on it? or the toilet has a name on it. So at the Crystal Cathedral in Orange County, every single thing has a name on it. Everything's a naming opportunity. Normally you get a building named after you. Listen, if you want to name like a coffee machine after you, you can give it to us. We'll name a chair after you. We'll, we'll name that stool after you. 
Um, anyway, it's been going on for a really long time, and that was happening before. So that's the setting of this area, a beautiful setting, a religious area, and Jesus is about to have a conversation with his friends. And so it starts out like this in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this is familiar to you, right? This shouldn't be new to anyone. This is a big text. I know there's pastors who like to find the most obscure texts in scriptures and preach on those. Um, I'm not really one of those guys. I mean, sometimes we do that. But I like to take the big scriptures that we know and maybe look at them from a different angle until it slant a little bit, which I think is important. So this is, this is a familiar text. You've heard this preached on a ton of times. Maybe you won't learn anything new today, but as, as we step into it, I think there's three things that help us understand this conversation a little bit. Firstly, we have to understand the context that the disciples were not new followers to Jesus. This happens in the middle of his ministry. So when he's asking these questions, he's asking it right in the middle, right? Why ask this question now? I think it's because following Jesus is not just a one-time decision. It is an ongoing commitment, an everyday decision, and our faith changes over time. As we grow, as we learn, as we study, as we mature, hopefully, as we regress like some of us do, um, the way that we think about faith and the way that we think about Jesus changes. Our faith changes. We forget. We change. Our perspective moves and shifts. Who do they think I am is the question that Jesus asked. And it's fascinating, but these were not new disciples. So the second question that, or the second point I think that gives us context for this conversation is that the disciples had kind of already answered this question at least for themselves, right? By leaving everything and following Jesus, they had answered that question. However, sometimes being asked who you believe God to be, while it can seem confrontational, it's sometimes important for us to re-clarify who we believe Jesus is in our lives. Sometimes we get lazy in our faith, especially when we assume our faith and we assume the faith of other people. Sometimes we need to be confronted, and Jesus is now confronting so that they don't get lazy. The third thing that we learn, I think, is that Jesus likes a setup, right? Any of you watch comedians here? Comedians are great at that. They'll tell a story, they'll be going in one direction, and then they'll take a really hard left turn. And that left turn is where we find, like, we have a visceral response. We laugh, right? Because they say something we weren't expecting them to say. And there are certain people who are really good at this and others who are not as good at this. I, I watched a master class in this, if you want to know the truth, a few weeks ago. I was at this healthcare um, conference. And I know some of you may know him. Pastor Carl Hafner was there. He's the pastor of Kettering Church, was at Walla Walla for a long time. Carl is one of the best speakers when it comes to the setup, right? So he's telling the story, and I mean, he's, he's working it. It's really good. This setup to what he was about to say was just powerful. So powerful, in fact, that there were four women who were playing. Um, they had a string quartet that was going along with the music that was being played, and they're in tears. Like, they're crying so bad. It's like ugly weeping happening on the stage beside him. He's telling the story, and everyone's just like leaning in, and just like it's washing over us, and he's setting up the story, and he gets right to the, to the point where it should have broken our hearts open, and rather than do that, he took a, he took a turn, and he tells this joke, and we all start laughing, right, right in the middle of it. And it was just such a good setup. And then I realized this is why Carl is brilliant. He used that set, he used the, he used the setup to the joke to set up the real point of the story. And I thought these women were going to pass out. They were crying so hard by the end of this thing. He was brilliant. And Jesus loves the setup because he asked this question because he wanted to ask another question. 
So they answer this first question, who do, who do people say that I am? And they go, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah. And then they throw in like the garbage statement, like, well, I'm on the prophet, right? They just throw that out there. Now, these are all good answers, but there's no commitment in these answers. Oh, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, some say other prophets. The, the problem is, listen, conviction is an important part of a crucial conversation. Without it, what are we really talking about? So let me give you an example. I, in college, I, took, I got two degrees, like, as I think I've mentioned before. Um, one is in religious studies, so we studied you know, Scripture, and we wrestled and struggled with Scripture. We interpreted Scripture, translated Scripture, interpreted Scripture, and it had this like eternal significance when you're dealing with Scripture. And then I also got a degree in English, where I spent a lot of time doing poetic criticism, which is much the same process of translating and, and exegeting, if you will, and, and interpreting. But then at the end, end of the day, you're kind of like, I don't know. Here, you're like, oh, this has eternal significance. Here, you're like, well, who really knows what Walt Whitman said, right? So I thought I'd bring a little Walt Whitman today to church. Why not? So um, here's a poem, Sounds of the Winter. It says this, Sounds of the Winter too, sunshine upon the mountains, many a distant strain from cherry railroad train." From nearer field, barn, house, the whispering air, even the mute crops garnered apples, corn, children and women's tones, rhythm of many a farmer and a flail, an old man's garrulous lips among the rest. Come on, garrulous lips, that's good. That's poetry. Think not we give out yet forth from these snowy hairs, we keep up the lilt. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It really is. But here's the thing. You don't care. You guys are like. And don't you feel so bad for poets? Because you know somebody labored over this. You know Walt was like, you know, his beard grew as he wrote that. He's just writing. He's convicted of this. And everyone's like, oh, nice words. Walt's like, killing me. And listen, we don't really commit to poetry that well. I mean, he wrote a poem called, I Sing the Body Electric. That's weird. This is what he committed to. He committed to his beard. Put that picture up. Dude, he's, he was in it. He's like a beard. And, like he looks like a poet. He looks like he struggled and he's bled over these words. And the problem is we don't care. And he, wrote a, he wrote a poem called, I Sing the Body Electric, which is essentially like a 19th century, you know, Your Body is a Wonderland by John Mayer. It's essentially that same song, right? But I feel so bad for poets because they don't have music, so we don't remember what they say. You know, at least with songwriters, you go around singing. Uh, you'll sing the words wrong, of course, but you sing it. Poetry, like, thanks. I used to write poems for the girls I dated. Yeah, they didn't care. You're like, oh, that's nice. I wrote a song for my wife. I think it's weird that you're clapping. You didn't hear it. It's horrible. Yeah, it's a horrible song. But, you know, but the poetry wasn't working. So I went for the music, made it happen. So, you know. But this is the thing, right? Like the the answers were missing the point and there was no conviction in them. And it was missing the point. Like the John the Baptist, no. Elijah, Jeremiah, no. It's like they were confusing Tom Hanks for Peter Scolari. 
You don't know who Peter Scolari is, do you? All right, so back in the 80s, when Tom Hanks first became an actor, he got, um, he got a job on the sitcom, this sitcom called Booze and Buddies. One person in the whole room. One person's like, that's right. The rest of you are like, what? And then some of you are so young, you're like, Tom Hanks was on TV? <laughs> yeah, well, he started off a TV. This little sitcom was about these two guys who were living in an all-woman's building in New York City, which, by the way, are there all women buildings in New York City? I had no idea. Anyway, it was this place where they lived and they would have to cross-dress to go in. Yeah, it wasn't that great. But it was him and his buddy, Peter Scolari. Now, as we know, Tom Hanks' career has gone this direction. Peter Scolari's career, we don't know because nobody knows who that is. So here's the thing. This is like them going to Tom Hanks. Let's say you saw him on the, on the street corner and you're like, hey, that's Tom Hanks. I'm going to go say hello. And you go, hey, listen, I've really, I've, I've really appreciated your stuff. The things you've done pretty well. Um, could you sign, sign, sign my autograph, sign an autograph? And he signs Tom Hanks and you go, oh, I thought you were Peter Scolari. Sorry, I'm not interested in this. Um, it sucks to be like misjudged on who you are. When I was playing music, I apparently looked a little bit like the, um, the drummer from Audio Adrenaline. I didn't realize that. So we would show up in kind of the same places, and people would ask for my autograph, and I'd sign my name, and they'd be like, who? And I'd be like, oh, Tim Gillespie. I'm the lead singer of this band. And they're like, oh. And then they never knew what to do, because they didn't want to throw it away right in front of me. Because, you know, we played Christian music, and they're nice enough. So they'd be like, oh, thanks. Anyway, that, that's how they answered this question. They answered it as if somebody, you know, they missed it. They missed it. So then, continuing on, then he asked them, all right, who do you say that I am? See, that was the punchline. The setup, who do they say that I am? The punchline, who do you say that I am? This is the real question. This is the real question, the only one that matters. And so what happens? What always happens? Peter always wants to be the first in the class, and he immediately goes, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is Peter at his best, right? We all need more Peters in our lives. We need somebody who will jump right in and go all the way. Peter's like, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him, and he says, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, it's almost weird the way Jesus answers him because he's like, yes, you're right, but you didn't actually come up with that answer. It's like if you were in class and the teacher asked you a question and you answer it and they go, yeah, you're right, but you know what? It wasn't even you. I actually taught you that, so I should really get the accolades for this. <laughs> like, that's not a professor you want to hang out with. You're like, seriously, man? I, like, I answered the question. That's kind of what Jesus does, but he does it for a reason. The reason why he does it is because this reminds us of the priority of God to reveal himself to us. In other words, everything you know about God comes from God. Everything that you've learned through scripture, that came from God. Everything that you know through nature, that came from God. Everything that you know from other people, that came from God because an active faith effervesces the revelation of God in our lives. What that means is when you are actively seeking God, he is revealing himself to us and through us. You know, sometimes we, be we don't believe that God reveals. Sometimes we're like, oh, I never see God. I don't know where he is. Every time someone says that to me, I'm like, wow, you are really not paying attention. He is everywhere. 
The question is not where is God revealing himself? The question is where is God not revealing himself? But the problem is we're not really active in looking. We're not active in our faith. We're not active in our study. We're not active in our experience or our community. And when that happens, yeah, you don't see him. It's not his fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. Because I stopped looking for where God is revealing. And this is what Jesus says. I love the way Jesus answered that. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. But this is really what's going on in the conversation. He says this, um, who do people say that I am? And Peter goes, you're Christ. And he goes, you're Peter. It's like they're recognizing each other. You tell me who I am, I'll tell you who you are. So Peter goes, you're Christ. And he goes, you're Peter. By the way, change his name. By the way, that means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. We, we need to do a little bit of work on this text because this obviously is a text that in certain faith traditions has been, um, has been used to show ecclesiastical authority and power over people, right? In fact, they would say that, um, that Peter's the first pope because of this statement right here. And, um, and I'm not bashing any, any congregation. There's a lot of history in this, and a lot of Protestants deal with it kind of the same way as well. But let's deal with this text a little bit, because it says, um, upon this rock, I will build my church. I believe that this is an ascent to the continuation of the ecclesia. In other words, he's saying, listen, this is actually not about Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. The object of that sentence is church, not Peter. He wants you to know that it's important that you guys continue to meet together because we need something that's going to push back the gates of hell in the world. Because when I leave, it's you, right? I think that's really important. But here's the next part that we often confuse. It says, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you hold on earth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, this is where we get weird because we're like, okay, he gave it to one person and then that person is now in charge and has the, and has, has the power and status over everything, right? That's the way we have oftentimes interpreted this text. But let's think about this for a moment. Um, when you give a key to someone... You are not giving them power, you are giving them responsibility and access, right? I want you to think about that for a moment. When I come and work at a church, I often don't want them to give me a key because when they give me a key, it means I'm responsible for opening the doors all the time. It means I'm going to get the call at three o'clock in the afternoon on Sabbath after everybody's left the church. Pastor Tim, um, I left my Bible in the pew. Could you come down and open the church? Right? And it's, I'm happy to do it. I mean, I'm happy to do it. I want to come down and I want to open the doors for you after church. So please leave your glasses and leave your Bibles at church. <laughs> Listen, um, it's horrible. And it's horrible, especially when you're like a sole pastor of a church and there's nobody else around to go open the doors. You're always the one who has to open the doors. When you are given the keys to something, you are given responsibility for others people, other people's access. That's not power, friends. That's service and sacrifice. What he was giving to Peter was not ecclesial authority so that he might have power over other people. What he was giving him was the responsibility of the Great Commission. And what he's saying is what you show people about heaven will happen here on earth. What you let them see is what they receive. So listen, what's fascinating is that a few, a few chapters later in chapter 19, he actually gives the same commission to everybody. 
He actually says, listen, friends, we're all, like, we're all given the keys, right? You're given the keys to the kingdom of God for other people. They will only know Jesus through you. They will only see heaven through you. And the only way that happens is if you use those keys, open the door, and show them heaven. This is a huge responsibility, but it is not ecclesial power. Just to be clear, I don't feel like I have power over anyone, like anyone, even my kids. They don't listen. I mean, they sometimes, sometimes they do. Um, I don't think my position as pastor gives me ecclesial authority over you. It means that I have a deep responsibility that is sacrificial, that is in service, to make sure that you can see God and to create a place where you can bring people where they might see the kingdom of heaven. That's what that is. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a here, now you're God on earth. It's here, you got a lot of work to do. And when we give somebody keys, we give them access and responsibility. But then right after that, he sternly warns the disciples, hey, don't tell anybody about the Messiah. Don't tell anybody this. What? Why would he do that? Because this is kind of Jesus at his best as well, trying not to let anyone know that he's, he's Christ. Why? And it's a good question. Why in the world would Jesus not want people to know? I think this. Feel free to disagree with me. I think that Jesus know, knew that when people knew who he was, and I mean really knew who he was, it answered the question the way Peter did. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah, son of the living God. If, if people began to answer that question, it would change everything. And people aren't ready for that. We talk about conversion. Conversion is never a point in time. Conversion is a long, long road to understanding who Jesus is. And by the way, once you've been converted and convinced who he is, you have to be confronted again. You have to clarify again who he is in your life because we're people we forget. I mean, we even saw this before Easter, right? When people finally recognized who Jesus was, they threw him a parade at the Passover. And I don't think Jesus was ready for that because Jesus knew once you know it changes everything, you're not ready for that. So of all the conversations that we find in Scripture, this one is one of the most, if not the most important one. And it's not important for Peter, even though it was then. It's important for you today because the question we have for you today is who do you say that he is? It's the only question that matters. At the end of the day, it's not about all these different points of doctrine. It's not about all that, although those are wonderful expressions and help us in our understanding of who Jesus is. The question is, who do you say that he is? Because that sets the trajectory of your life. That sets the whole purpose of what it is that you do and who it is that you are and what it is that he will be revealing to you and through you. Don't answer this question quickly. It's easy to go, oh, well, we're in church. We must all ascend to the same thing. I don't know that to be true. I don't know what you assented to today. I don't know how you answer that question today. Because there's implications that come from that. If you say, if you're going to bind yourself to God, because that's really what is asking for here. Again, that, that, that Latin term for religion, religare, means to bind. What are you binding yourself to? It's the way you answer this question. And here's what's crazy. Do you bind yourself to God, to Christ? Because he wants to bind himself to you. And that's the grace of it all, isn't it? The fact that he's willing to bind himself to us, these weak, these confused, these 
often distracted temporal beings. He's willing to bind himself to us. The implications of the way you answer this question are all about grace and love and acceptance. It's all about boundaries and commitments. It's all about what we loose and what we free here on earth as it is in heaven. Are you ready for that? Jesus knew. Not everyone's ready for this yet. It can't be yet. Just wait. But the time has come today, always, for you to answer this question. Who do you say that he is? It's a big question, so don't answer it quickly. Don't answer it with cliches that you've heard from time immemorial. Answer it with the honest truth of your heart. And if you say you are the Messiah, son of the living God, then God's going to build his church on you. And the powers of hell will not prevail against it. Right? It will not, we, we will change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it becomes a place full of compassion. It becomes a place full of love. It becomes a place that brings people in, does not push people out. And it will do that through you because you will have been given the keys to the kingdom. How you answer this question is vitally important, not just to you today, but to the world tomorrow. Because the powers of hell encroach. They want to eat everything up. They want to take our joy. They want to take our love. They want to take our inclusion. They want to take our acceptance of one another. They want to take the compassion that we show from one another. They want to take it all. They want to suck it all in and leave us dry, leave us in darkness. But he says right here that the powers of hell will not prevail against his church. So sometimes we're, I hate to quote this, but sometimes we're the watchers on the wall. We're the ones who stand there going, not today, not here. Can't happen. Because our job is to open those doors to heaven. Let's bow our heads today. Heavenly Father, Jesus, you're the Messiah, Son of the living God. So may we fling open the doors of heaven. You've given us keys, keys that we have no business holding on to but we carry them deeply in our hearts. So Lord, what it's like in heaven, may it be like that on earth through us. May we have this conversation with you daily, hourly if need be, that you are the Messiah. All our lives are given to you. Lord, we pray these things in your name, in the name of your Son, in the name of Jesus. Amen.